The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Hey everyone, how are you? I hope you enjoy this episode. At the end of it, I put some interviews that I did this week on Fox News Radio. One with the Monopoly Man, which was very cool, all about Equifax, and uh, Charlie Daniels, the musician, and I might include someone else. So, uh, alright, stick around and listen to those. Hail yourselves, everyone. Enjoy the episode. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Hope you're having a fine week. I am Ben Kissel. Marcus Parks, he's out. He's on vacation doing something wonderful, I hope. All right, so we got a lot of things to get to today. We're going to talk about the attacks in Niger that left four Americans dead. And we're going to speak about Donald Trump and uh, his response to the family. Uh, of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. Now, this is a little controversial. It's been highly politicized. Uh, Representative Congresswoman Frederica Wilson out of Florida has criticized Donald Trump for making insensitive remarks. Uh, evidently, he said in a larger context that uh, LaDavid Johnson knew what he was getting into. But, of course, all soldiers, when they sign up for the military, specifically what they were doing over in Niger, uh, being Green Berets on that specific mission was a volunteer position, something they obviously wanted to do, wanted to be a part of. So from that perspective, uh, he's not necessarily wrong. However, we have to put things into Trump context, and he has a history of being insensitive, specifically to gold star families and Gold Star parents. If you recall, of course, Kazir Khan, the father of a son who passed away, was killed in battle uh, in 2016 during the primary. Kazir Khan spoke at the DNC convention. And Donald Trump blasted him. So that is why a lot of people haven't been giving Donald Trump the benefit of the doubt on this one. I have some thoughts on it. We'll get into those. I also want to talk about the opioid epidemic. 200,000 people now gone, dead, Americans, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, dead 
because of opioid abuse and the opioid epidemic, which is, of course, allowed to continue because our government is bought and sold by big pharmaceutical companies. That's exactly what's going on with that. So we'll get into more detail here going forward. Also, the Uranium One deal. It involves Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation. It's interesting, so we'll get into it. I think it would be a much more significant story had she won. Uh, Of course, don't tell that uh, to the folks there at Fox News. Uh, Of course, I was doing Fox News Radio all week and the week previous, so it's always fascinating uh, to hear from the callers and really get an understanding of where they're coming from. The Uranium One controversy is real, though, and it is another indicator of how our politicians are bought and sold by huge corporations, multinational corporations, international corporations. And it's another indicator that uh, the American people, all of us, are consistently getting bent over and screwed. All right, so I want to name first the four soldiers that were killed in the Niger attack. A brutal attack, by the way. Evidently over 50 ISIS, uh, members of ISIS, which have lost Raqqa now. ISIS no longer has a caliphate, which that's a very good thing. There has been some positive uh, movements regarding the destruction of ISIS. Uh, Ash Carter, uh, of course, formerly with the Obama administration, has spoken out. And basically uh, what the Obama administration was pushing two years ago is sort of beginning to come to fruition. Obviously, Mad Dog Mattis, the maddest of all the mad dogs, uh, has kind of continued that policy. And let's give Donald Trump some credit, allowing the military generals to do their jobs. So ISIS has lost Raqqa. But as we see consistently around the globe, there are still rogue elements of the terror group that are uh, really wreaking havoc on people and destroying lives. So the four soldiers who lost their lives, the four mentioned Sergeant La David Johnson, Staff Sergeant Brian Black, Staff Sergeant Jeremiah Johnson, Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright. So those were the four that passed away uh, in this horrific attack. They were not prepared. Uh, They were not in armored vehicles. Oh, my goodness. It is, uh, some people are calling it Benghazi on steroids, but I really don't want to politicize this too much. It's already been so politicized. I was just on Fox News is happening now today talking about General John Kelly, of course, a gold star father himself. He lost his son in 2010. Uh, uh, General Kelly said that Donald Trump probably shouldn't be calling the families. Evidently, it's not uncommon for presidents not to call the families of the fallen. As a matter of fact, uh, Barack Obama did not call uh, General Kelly uh, when his son passed away. Uh, George W. Bush has been hailed for meeting with over 500 military families. But you know what? George W. Bush's horrific war policies are the reason that those people passed away. He's the reason that they're dead. 
I am a little sick and tired of this let's uh, praise George W. Bush as just a goofball president in the context of Donald Trump. Some people are totally losing sight of the fact that he is the reason Ashcroft, Cart, uh, uh, Cheney, um, Rumsfeld, the entire crew, they are the reason why we are in the longest war in United States history. It's cost anywhere from 4 to $6 trillion. You can imagine what that money could have been spent on, building roads, building bridges before they collapse. Eh, maybe some clean drinking water. Flint is often mentioned in that, but there's multiple other places all across the country that are in need of clean drinking water. Not to mention education. God knows. The list goes on and on and on. Enduring Operation Iraqi Freedom cost over uh, nearly 5,000 lives. All the um, multiple other operations, you know, thousands and thousands of lives with hundreds of thousands of injured. And that's just Americans. Not to mention the foreign policy that destabilized the Middle East, which led to the rise of ISIS. And now we have a situation where I am very pro-Kurd, but we have a situation where Iran probably just going to take over Iraq. So what the heck did that do? Uh, we consistently destabilize these region, regions and we leave a power vacuum that is c constantly being filled by militant terrorist groups. You look at what happened in Libya. It was a horrible decision. The only successful African country. Gaddafi was a scumbag. So was Saddam Hussein. It doesn't matter. It does not... They're, they're doing... Uh, they are playing the politics of their region, obviously successfully, and we just do not have the resources to go and occupy the power vacuum to fill the power vacuum once it's vacated by someone that the United States has decided to dethrone. Horrible, horrible decision. All right, so those are the soldiers, the four soldiers that were killed. Uh, evidently, Sergeant David Johnson was not recovered. His body was not recovered until two days later, which is uh, devastating. You can only imagine uh, what's happened to his corpse. Hopefully, he was not alive. Uh, evidently, he does not have, he did not have an open casket. That's how brutal it was. And, you know, we can only imagine. So... Donald Trump called the family, and this whole thing has become politicized to the fault of Donald Trump and also to the fault of Congresswoman Wilson. But Donald Trump started it. I hate to even say that word, but that is the playground politics of our time. Donald Trump did start it Monday by saying that Barack Obama never met with the... With the um, parents of soldiers who lost their lives, which is obviously not true. And Donald Trump just cannot figure out how to speak about politics or how to make himself seem like a leader without comparing himself to somebody else, without comparing himself uh, to his predecessor. Barack Obama should not have been brought up in the context of this conversation at all. And the fact that Donald Trump brought him up is, again, another indicator that Donald Trump can only lead via 
destruction. He can only lead negatively. He is not a positive force for good. He doesn't know how to do that. So he politicized it. He made a point where he's the best consoler in chief. There is a video that just came out uh, on the New York Post website where uh, a woman did record Donald Trump speaking with her after she lost her son in battle, and he did a nice job. He really, it was fine. Um, He was sympathetic. So this whole thing is being blown out of proportion politically. Obviously, I think it's actually not being blown out of proportion enough when it comes to the loss of life and the um, sadness and the amount of Mourning and the amount of respect that we uh, we should be giving these families that the, the respect that these families deserve, who lost loved ones overseas, uh, defending our freedom. But nonetheless, Donald Trump, like a drunkard or like myself, attempting to get out of a bar at three o'clock in the morning, constantly steps in front of his own feet and trips out the door. All he had to do was look, all he had to do to look cool was just keep on walking and he hit the glass door. He was pushing when they when the handle said pull. I mean it is pathetic. He lays his own minds in the field and then challenges himself to run across it this whole week could have been so much better for him had he put his ego aside and not tried to make this a measuring contest of compassion between he and former president barack obama it doesn't make any sense whatsoever he creates these american ninja warrior like obstacle courses and then complains when he can't get past the first obstacle when he can't get past the high bar I mean, it's unbelievable. And then we have the situation where uh, because he politicized it, Congresswoman Wilson was able to go and capitalize on it for her own political gain. And I, uh, you know, I, I'm very conflicted because I'm, I've come full circle on this. I've been thinking a lot about this this week and getting a lot of phone calls on it from Fox News Radio, and, you know, I'm filling in, or you, you can't replace the late, great Alan Combs. I'm just doing my best, and I've really thought about this, and um, this is not the hill that I'm going to die on when it comes to criticizing uh, Donald Trump. This is just not going to be it. I think we're getting a little bit, it's getting a little crazy here. You know, we're really losing sight of what matters, which is, again, uh, the fallen family members, and... Uh, the the family members of the fallen, rather, and how they deserve the right to mourn. And Congresswoman Wilson, you know, with all due respect, she seems to be a fine congressman. Evidently, people in her uh, district in Florida like her. I'm not, uh, you know, going to get here and be all personal with it. I spoke on uh, Happening Now Again this morning regarding what seems to be her new love of the spotlight, And, of course, Donald Trump is (laughs) guilty a thousand times over when it comes to loving the spotlight as opposed to loving the country which he is supposed to be leading right now. But I do think this reality show culture that we're living in is a disease, this, this idea 
of searching for celebrity over substance, uh, searching for, you know, just for getting uh, humanity in the in the pursuit of celebrity is really a disease that is affecting so many of our leaders now. And it's unfortunate because it's fogging their judgment. Representative Wilson has been criticized by the right, is trying to politicize it, uh, the event. And then, of course, the left uh, is embracing her and uh, allowing her to score these political points. It's always very sad when political points are scored over tragedy. But that's the way that politics work, and it just is what it is. Then you always have the situation uh, where she will be demonized. She was demonized by uh, Sheriff Clark, who uh, I believe called her wacky. Donald Trump called her wacky in a tweet, which isn't helping. But, of course, what does the man do to help ever? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Sheriff Joe Clark, I think it's a, yeah, Sheriff Clark said, um, that she dressed ridiculous. She literally dresses the exact same way as he does, Sheriff David Clark. So I have no idea what he was saying with that. They are like, they are uh, a, a duo. They, they should actually be quite good of friends. They could share the same wardrobe. So that's where we're at with this. I think we can put this to rest. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, of course, White House Press Secretary Sanders, coming out today saying how we shouldn't criticize General John Kelly because he is a four-star general, gold-star father. But again, what kind of slippery slope is that? What kind of slippery slope nonsense is that when it comes to the First Amendment and freedom of press? Of course we can ask former uh, people in the military, former generals in the military, and you know what? We can ask current generals in the military as well. A lot of hard questions. That's the whole point of this country we keep it uh we keep it real we keep people uh at the top of their game by holding their feet to the fire so when they make a mistake they get burned a little bit and every step they take it's a reminder oh i don't want to get burned like that again i do want to point out as well some of people some of the people uh that i've seen on social media some of the more uh successful left-leaning people some worked in the obama administration um, others just uh, more activists criticizing General John Kelly. You know, he is also a gold star father. So we want to be careful not to um, criticize criticize him personally for his loss, you know, uh, for how he handled the loss of his son in 2010. And if you had a chance to watch that press conference of General John Kelly's, I thought it was powerful. And some people did want to demonize him. Uh, and the irony is they're trying to defend the families of Gold Star, uh, Gold Star families, the families of fallen soldiers. But, you know, he is one. So you, you want to be careful not to take everything so full circle that you end up becoming the enemy that you dislike, the enemy that you hate, the thing that you don't want to be. That's what I found uh, happening quite a bit this week uh, as well. Um, all right, so what we know is for several years, American and French troops have provided training and support to the militaries of Niger and other vulnerable African countries where Islamic extremism has grown. The White House, is, as I said earlier, has been wildly criticized for its response to the attack, especially in the delay acknowledging the ambush. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said earlier this week 
that the delay in the public acknowledgement of the attack was due to a, quote, process that is standard protocol. They, they got to change the standard protocol then. I love the excuse where it's like, well, it's done wrong because our protocol is to do it wrong. Well, it's time to change the protocol then. Took around 13 days before Donald Trump um, uh, was able to reach out to the families. And again, uh, a lot of presidents don't reach out to the families at all. Uh, and that's, that is what it is. And evidently, a lot of the families... Uh, they want to hear from the from the friends of the fallen. They want to hear from personal uh, people in the military. They want to hear from, you know, folks who really knew uh, the soul and the core of the person that's passed away. So I do understand from that perspective. And again, also, I just want to kind of circle back here and talk about George W. Bush trying to score political points off of all this this week, talking about uh, the politics of nationalism. Oh, shut up. Shut up, George W. Bush. It's unbelievable to me how people have forgotten the politics of nationalism. When the military, the government, uh, uh, media, as when they when they were driving us to war in 0102 for the invasion in 03 of Iraq, it was nefarious. It was dangerous. It was scary. It was nationalism on on roids, as mentioned earlier, regarding Benghazi on steroids regarding the attack in Niger. So for for George W. Bush to pretend like he was some saint, like he was some great president who didn't exploit nationalism for his own political gain makes me nauseous. And it's a lie and it's nonsense. So let's not forget that George W. Bush his cronies are the reason we are in the longest war in U.S. history. And honestly, the foreign policy blunders of that administration gave way for a celebrity politician like Donald Trump to climb through the ranks because it was a, an administration that eroded the American trust, Americans' trust in government. All right, so that's where we're at with that. Um, I think we need to uh, focus on some bigger things here. Uh, you know, this is this is a personality thing. Everyone's using it for political reasons. And again, the most important thing that we can do is just remember the individuals who actually gave their life uh, for us on that battlefield in that horrible ambush. Which uh, the 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 uh, the accounts are pretty brutal. Um, and again, those names are Staff Sergeant Brian Black, Staff Sergeant Jeremiah Johnson, Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright, and Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. All right, let's move on to OxyContin opioids, the epidemic. Uh, it's sweeping the nation. It's like Beatlemania, but everyone's dying. 200,000 Americans have lost their lives so far. Mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters. It's absolutely horrific what's going on in this country with our opioid epidemic. If you get a chance, check out the documentary on Netflix, Warning, This Drug May Kill You. I watched it on a plane because I have 
have a habit, a history of watching extremely sad documentaries on airplanes and openly weeping. So I stuck to my tradition and I did that on a flight recently. So check out that documentary, Warning This Drug May Kill You. I want to talk about what we what we just found out regarding this Washington Post article and 60 Minutes, a 60 Minutes investigation. The name of the Washington Post article is The Drug Industry's Triumph Over the DEA. I'll just read a little bit about uh, a little bit from this article and then we'll talk about it going forth. Uh, In April 2016, at the height of the deadliest drug epidemic in U.S. history, Congress effectively stripped the Drug Enforcement Administration of its most potent weapon against large drug companies suspected of spilling prescription narcotics onto the nation's streets. But by then, the opioid war had claimed 200,000 lives, more than three times the number of U.S. military deaths in the Vietnam War. Overdose, overdose deaths continue to rise, and there is no end in sight. A handful of members of Congress, these are real schmucks, allied themselves, allied themselves with the nation's major drug distributors, prevailed upon the DEA and the Justice Department to agree to a more industry-friendly law undermining efforts to stanch the flow of pain pills according to an investigation, again, by the Washington Post in 60 Minutes. The DEA had opposed the efforts for years, and this goes back to the Obama administration as well. The law was the crowning achievement of a multifaceted campaign by the drug industry to weaken aggressive DEA enforcement efforts against drug distribution companies that were supplying corrupt doctors and pharmacists who peddled narcotics to the black market. The industry worked behind the scenes with lobbyists and key members of Congress pouring more than a million dollars into their election campaigns. The chief advocate for the law that hobbled the DEA was Representative Tom Moreno, a Pennsylvania Republican who is now or was President Trump's nominee to become the nation's next drug czar. He has since taken that off the table. In the wake of this story, Representative, corrupt Representative Tom Moreno has said, you know what, I don't need to be the drug czar. Okay, unbelievable he was even a nominee to become the nation's next drug czar. Moreno spent years trying to move the law through Congress. It passed after Senator Orrin G. Hatch, the Republican out of Utah, negotiated a final version with the DEA. For years, some drug distributors were fined for repeatedly ignoring warnings from the DEA to shut down suspicious sales of hundreds of millions of pills while they racked up billions and billions of dollars in sales. The new law makes it virtually impossible for the DEA to freeze suspicious narcotic shipments from companies, according to internal agency and Justice Department documents, and an independent assessment by the DEA's chief administrative law judge in a soon-to-be published a law review article that powerful tool had allowed the agency to immediately prevent drugs from reaching the street uh, there's one story 
in the 60 Minutes uh, story uh, about this small town pharmacy. I think the town had maybe 400 people in it. And over the years, they had 9 million Oxycontin pills. 9 million for a town of 400. I don't know. Maybe the entire town was lined uh, with 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 Nickelodeon uh, slime. I have no clue if everyone was just constantly falling down like it was some bizarre Mr. Bean movie. 9 million pills. These doctors are getting kicked backs for it. The patients are absolutely um, craving it. I mean, it's crazy what's happening. I was doing Fox News Radio this week, and I had a phone call from a nurse, and he was talking about his uh, his clients, his patients, his customers. He kept on referring to them as customers, and I said, don't you mean patients? He's like, we call them customers now. That's the, the world that has merged between business and healthcare in such a way where the term patient was not even what he referred to these individuals as. He called them customers. He was saying that doctors are graded basically the exact same way as Uber drivers, by performance. And it, their their performance is graded by the customer. So there's no denying that I'm sure some Uber drivers have done a great job and gotten one star because the person in the back seat's a raving lunatic or too drunk to know where the heck they're going. And they start screaming at the poor guy. And next thing you know, or girl, and next thing you know, uh, they're getting one star. That's exactly what happens with these doctors as well. These people go in, they're they're in need of their fix. Uh, Maybe they couldn't get any heroin that day and they need their oxy or whatever it might be. The doctor says no. Next thing you know, they're giving them a bad bad review. Uh, The doctor is being blasted. The hospital could lose some funding, uh, lose some status. The whole system is set up to favor big pharmaceutical companies. Political action committees represent the industry contributed at least $1.5 million to 23 lawmakers who sponsored or co-sponsored four versions of the bill, including nearly $100,000 to the aforementioned Marino and $177,000 to Orrin Hatch. Overall, the drug industry spent $102 million lobbying Congress on the bill and other legislation between 2014 and 2016. It is unbelievable. There is always strings attached to the money. They basically just write the bills. These law, so-called lawmakers, the, the pharmaceutical companies are the lawmaker. Make no bones about that. These so-called lawmakers just push it through. They rubber stamp it. And that's exactly how we get horrific legislation like this in the height of the nations and the world's worst opioid epidemic of all time. I mean, let's not forget when governor, uh, when now Vice President Pence was governor of Indiana, they had to do a needle share program in rural Indiana because everyone, uh, oxy prices went too high. They went to to heroin. Uh, The needles got infected and HIV spread. I mean, this is Trump country. This is these are Trump supporters. A lot of them. This is not a uh, a blue uh, or a red thing. This goes across economic lines, across racial lines. This is really an epidemic, and the government is complicit along with big pharmaceutical companies. The bill that was crafted, in case you're wondering, by the way, they're always very cute names. This one was called Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement. Act. Oh, ensuring patient access. 
It's unbelievable. This is according to Joseph T. Razanazi. Uh, the drug industry, the manufacturers, wholesalers, distributors, and chain drug stores have an influence over Congress that has never been seen before. Now, this uh, Razanazi guy, uh, he used to, he ran the DEA's division responsible for regulating the drug industry and led a decade-long campaign of, ing- of aggressive enforcement until he was forced out of the agency in 2015. He goes on to say, I mean, to get Congress to pass a bill to protect their interest in the height of an opioid epidemic just shows me how much influence they, of course, he's referring to the pharmaceutical companies, have. But besides the sponsors and co-sponsors of the bill, few lawmakers knew the true impact the law would have. It sailed through Congress and was passed by unanimous consent. This is even more shocking. Unanimous consent is a parliamentary procedure reserved for bills considered to be... Check this out. Non-controversial. Non, it, it didn't even have, they, they weren't even fighting about it. This went through a procedure, a parliamentary procedure, reserved for bills considered to be non-controversial. 200,000 people dead. The White House was equally unaware of the bill's import when then-President Barack Obama signed it into law, according to interviews with former senior administration officials. My goodness, just a small breakdown here. I mean, I I firmly believe we need to start treating big pharmaceutical companies the same way we treat big tobacco. We got to stop the advertising on television. We need to have them investing in programs, rehabilitation programs. That's what has to happen. Uh, Just a quick breakdown here of some of the cash. Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. They have donated, uh, of course, through their groups and lobbyists, Almost $41 million. CVS Health. Of course, CVS. You know CVS. You probably go to a CVS every single day to get your mouthwash, your soaps, uh, maybe pick up a magazine if anyone still reads those, some gum. Well, they also gave thirty-two, almost $33 million uh, to Congress to push through this horrific legislation. National Association of Chain Drug Stores gave $8 bucks. National Community of Pharmacists Association, $5.5 million. Rite Aid gave 2.8 million Walgreens 1.4 million and Cardinal Health 1 million it is unbelievable how deep this goes and what's so depressing is right now and we're not going to be depressed we're going to fight through it that's okay Um, but what's so interesting right now is when Donald Trump talks about it, and let's give Donald Trump some credit. In 2016, in that campaign, he was really the only one who even brought it up. But now he's talking about, and he's going to propose something here in the upcoming week. From what I have heard so far, though, it's all been this stupid freaking criminal justice reform stuff, right? Where not reform, rather, uh, law and order. Let's we're going to do law and order. It's it's the opposite of criminal justice reform, as a matter of fact. He wants a law and order approach. He says, "Why just don't start? Just don't start." Well, what happens is once the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, allowed for OxyContin to be given to kids as young as eleven, the epidemic really bloomed because you're going to tell me that an 11 year old kid is going to tell some person in a lab coat oh no I don't want that this is not some drug deal this is not some drug dealer some ridiculous over the top uh, looking character out of the movie Superfly okay that's how 
stupid and primitive the mindset is of our current leadership and our past leadership. Loretta Lynch, of course, who was the attorney general at the time, uh, declined to comment uh, on any of this. So that is the problem. Drug dealers, it is not this person who is like opening up a trench coat on some random corner, uh, having a list of uppers, zingers, yippers, and yappers. No, it is a person in a lab coat with way too many pens for some reason in their in their lab coat pocket telling an 11-year-old, here's an oxy. Here you go, kid. <sighs> Maybe if the kid really knows how to play guitar well, he can make it work. It is unreal what's going on in this country with our uh, with our pharmaceutical industry and how much uh, the claws, how deep the claws are driven in when it comes to uh, our Congress people's complete and utter lack of, mm, I want to say, morality. They have a total lack of morality. They're, they are forgetting their constituents. They get to Washington, D.C. The door closes behind them uh, in their new office. There's a lobbyist on the frickin' couch, and every single word that that lobbyist says, every single uh, circle at the at the uh, uh, added to the number uh, uh, on the donate check is an eraser of concerns that the actual constituents have from the community that elected that very official. It's unbelievable. Uh, Joe Renanese came to the DEA's headquarters as an outsider with an attitude. He worked as an agent in Detroit where he watched prescription drugs flood small town uh, towns and cities in the Midwest. Hundreds of millions of pills such as Vicodin and Oxycontin ended up in the hands of dealers and illegal users. Rogue doctors wrote fraudulent prescriptions for enormous numbers of pills and complicit pharmacists filled them out without question, oftentimes for cash. Internet Internet pharmacies supplied by drug distribution companies allowed users to obtain drugs without seeing a doctor. He says, quote, there were too many bad practitioners, too many bad pharmacies, and too many bad whole wholesalers and distributors. You know, and we have a country right now where we still don't have legal marijuana. It is unbelievable. Uh, they were saying Interstate 75 um they just called that Oxy Express, and that was in South Florida, Interstate 75, a.k.a. AKA Oxy Express. We have to get these drug dealers, and that when I say drug dealers, I mean companies. We have to hold them accountable. We cannot continue to allow people all over uh, this country to die, and again, in rural areas. And it's affecting children. It's, it's high school kids uh, to people in senior uh, care facilities. It, is, it knows no age, again, no race and no economic uh, uh, situation. It is a destroyer. 200,000 people, and we're not even having the conversation right now. We have an attorney general with Jeff Sessions who might have a seat filled by a raving lunatic in Roy Moore, who, by the way, if you're following that race, that's Roy Moore and Doug Jones, the Democrat out of Alabama, are tied, which is crazy. That is a testament to how crazy Roy Moore is. The fact a Democrat is tied 39%, 39% to fill the seat vacated by Attorney General, now Attorney General Jeff Sessions. 
That's how nuts Roy Moore is. Who, by the way, uh, got around five hundred thousand dollars from this from this from his so called charity. Um, after claiming that he got no money at all. Of course, he didn't disclose that $500,000 to the government, so he didn't pay taxes on it. He's a hypocrite. He is just another hypocrite. It is nauseating what that guy's all about. They say that uh, the uh, the country would make at least over a billion dollars if all 50 states legalized marijuana for recreational use and medical use. And I think it would take a massive blow it would make a massive blow to the pharmaceutical industries who are pushing these drugs for so-called pain medication. Oh, my goodness. It's unbelievable. So that's uh, that's where we're at as far as that goes. The government's completely complicit. Uh, we had the Obama administration complicit. The Trump administration's complicit. Uh, now we're talking about feeding the prison industrial complex with Donald Trump's law and order ideas. It all funnels through. It all goes through. It's, it's the economy of power. It is horrible what's going on. We're going to get more arrests. The people on the front lines are going to be the police officers. Their jobs are going to get more difficult as well. The tensions in the community are going to get higher. There will be destruction on the streets. There's going to be tension on the streets. And it's all because big pharmaceuticals bought our politicians who don't have the backbone or the balls when they get to Washington to stand up to the lobbyists and the big money donors. They don't have the courage and they shouldn't be there at all. we got to vote these people out. All right, and finally, let's get to the Uranium One deal. This involves uh, Obama, Clinton, Mueller, and Eric Holder. I actually think this story would be much more prevalent uh, if Hillary Clinton would have won. Uh, but, of course, she lost in 2016. So this story is kind of on the uh, peripheral, I would say, in the national conversation. But let's go into it here. I'm looking at an article uh, in Newsweek. I'll read a little bit from that here. A new congressional probe of the 2010 sale of U.S. uranium to Russia, led by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, is examining if the FBI alerted senior Obama administration officials about corruption among the transactions Russian players. Okay, very interesting. Obviously, a big deal is being made of the Trump-Russian collusion scandal. Who knows where that'll go? Mueller hasn't uh, given us any definitive information yet. We do know there was a uh, situation regarding Facebook, where the Russians evidently bought around $120,000 worth of Facebook ads. However, Hillary Clinton paid $22 million for Facebook ads uh, and social media ads, and Donald Trump paid fifty million dollars. So it was really kind of a splash in the bucket there uh, regarding the Facebook ads and uh, the Russians. Uh, uh, So we'll see if that really is uh, the biggest deal on earth. Although Facebook, oh, whatever. Facebook needs to completely transform its business model if it wants to be viable going forward. Okay, so before this deal was brokered in 2009, the FBI under then Robert Mueller, who is now, of course, the special counsel in the Russia investigation into potential collusion with the Trump campaign, had begun an investigation into corruption and extortion by senior managers of a company owned by the Russian government's nuclear company Rosatom. Now, of course, every company in Russia has 
has ties to the Kremlin. That's kind of the way uh, the oligarchy works over there. According to court filings revealed by The Hill, this was on Tuesday in 2009, the FBI found enough evidence to suggest this fellow, I'm going to butcher his name, Vadim Mikharin, who headed the Rosatom subsidiary 10X, was corrupt and high-level officials at Rosatom knew about his bribery scheme. In 2014, he pled guilty in a U.S. court case to orchestrating more than $2 million in bribe payments through shadowy, shadowy accounts in Cyprus, Latvia, and Switzerland. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley announced his committee's probe of the of the deal during a hearing with Attorney General Jeff Sessions on Wednesday. So this is a this is kind of an interesting thing that's happening right now. And again, you do wonder what the scandals would be uh, if Hillary Clinton were elected in 2016. I personally think we would be having a great time with them, uh, as the scandals under President Donald Trump are certainly fascinating. As well, uh, the FBI said it had no comment to Newsweek's questions about whether Mueller alerted senior Obama administration officials, including, of course, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, about the investigation before they brokered the deal. The DOJ did not immediately respond to questions as Secretary of State Clinton, along with then Attorney General Eric Holder, presided on the U.S. Committee on Foreign Investment that approved the deal. So you're starting to to see where the ties uh, come in with the Clintons and the Obama administration. Rosatom began its purchase of Uranium One, a Canadian mining firm that has licenses to mine American uranium deposits in Kazakhstan in 2009. The sale ended in 2013 and transferred the uranium into Russian hands. Now, what makes this so significant is that it wasn't just a small amount of uranium. It was roughly 20% of American reserves. So that's why you're seeing a lot of stuff on social media. Uh, a lot of the memes, which is apparently how people are getting their information these days. Hillary Clinton gave 20% of our uranium to the Russians. That's what they're talking about. The sale in 2013 that transferred the uranium, which made up 20% of the American reserves into Russian hands. So again, Rosatom. That's the controversial uh, Russian company owned or who was led by someone uh, who was uh, uh, in trouble and in, uh, imprisoned in 2014, began its purchase of Uranium One. That is a Canadian mining firm that has licenses to mine American uranium deposits in Kazakhstan in 2009. The sale ended in 2013 and transferred the uranium, which made up 20% of American reserves. So you understand. It's, this is why it's a little complex. The uranium is in Kazakhstan. Uh, this Canadian mining firm had the licenses to mine American uranium deposits in Kazakhstan. Now, this was purchased by Rosatom, the Russians. Okay, so I think we're all caught up to date on that. In several letters dated October 12th to various departments and agencies that either helped approve the deal or investigate the players, Grassley points out that in 2009, when the validity of the mining licenses was at issue, the chairman of Uranium One, Mr. Ian Telfer, donated $1 million to the Clinton Foundation via his family charity called the Fernwood Foundation.
Uh, Telfer was a major investor in the company Eurasia. Grassley wrote, of course, that's Chuck Grassley wrote, between 2008 and 2010, Uranium One and former Eurasia investors donated $8.6 million bucks million dollars to, guess what, uh, the Clinton Foundation. He said these donations were made while the Uranium One sale was being hammered out. Uranium deal, uranium deal to Russia with Clinton help and Obama administration knowledge is the biggest story that the media won't follow. Of course, uh, that is according to Donald Trump, so he calls it the fake media, which doesn't help. <laughs> as soon as Donald Trump starts uh, uh, pointing out a story, my uh, my my spider sense, my my rational sense is just like, oh, well, maybe there's no truth to it. But there is truth to this story, despite the fact that Donald Trump is tweeting about it. Trump is currently, of course, being investigated by Mueller, who is leading the Russian investigation into whether the Trump campaign or the president's associates assisted Russia in its efforts to interfere in the 2016 election. Mueller, of course, is a Republican who was picked to lead the FBI by George W. Bush in 2001 and served until 2013. So that is the Uranium One deal in a nutshell. Also, uh, former President Bill Clinton got paid five hundred thousand dollars to speak at a uh, at a event for uh, for this company uh, Rosatom, uh, which is a lot of money to hear former President Bill uh, Clinton speak five hundred thousand bucks. You imagine being that important, huh? Or is it all a front? That's the main question. So if you hear about Uranium One, that's basically it. Uh, These companies gave the Clintons millions of dollars via the Clinton Foundation, and theoretically, the Clintons then gave them mining rights in Kazakhstan for 20% of the U.S. oil reserves. Very interesting story, Uh, and we want to keep you up to date here on A. Blinken's Top Hat. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Marcus Parks will be back with me next week. I'm going to say hail yourselves. Find me on Twitter. Twitter at Ben Kissel on Instagram at Ben Kissel one Marcus Parks is Marcus Parks for everything. Uh, and that's it. And thanks. I want to thank everyone who supported me on Fox News Radio these past two weeks. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for going on the Facebook uh, and commenting. And thanks for tweeting at me. Um, yeah, I guess that's about it. Hail yourselves, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? It is Ben Kissel. You're listening to Fox News Talk. I am honored to have with me as a guest right now, Amanda Warner. Thank you so much for joining me, Amanda. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, you are mostly famous for being the Monopoly Man, and you recently showed up in the U.S. Senate hearing on Equifax, and you are a campaign manager for Public Citizen and Americans for Financial Reform. Yes, I am. All right, so let's educate me, please. That's number one, and through my education, the audience will be educated. Double education. What is Public Citizen and Americans for Financial Reform all about? What's the end game? Why'd you start it? Sure. So these groups uh, are basically just consumer advocacy organizations. Okay. Uh, Public Citizen is one of the oldest consumer advocacy organizations in the country. Um, just you know, advocating for common sense reforms to make us all safer, make our economy stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, Americans for Financial Reform is more recent. It actually came out of the 2008 financial crisis to try to bring in stronger consumer protections at the federal level to make sure that we don't have another Great Depression. So what are you seeing right now? Obviously, uh, tax reform. It does. 
Everything is so hyper-partisan. Who knows what the heck is going to happen uh, regarding that? Are you happy with the recent proposals coming from the Republicans? Are you happy with the way it's sort of going? Or would you like to see a bit of a different sort of approach? I think we'd really like to see a different approach. So approach. What, I mean, what would you like to see? Because obviously, you know, a lot of people are upset with the sort of lowering of uh, the taxes on the wealthier Americans. A lot of even wealthy Americans say, hey, we can afford it. We're all good. Everything is fine. What, what would you like to see change from the recent proposals? Yeah, I mean, I think we'd like to see a lot more money going back to the middle class and the working class folks who are yeah. actually, you know, building this economy. Right. Uh, right now, the current proposal is really just a tax cut for the rich. And I don't think that helps any of us who actually right. need help in this particular time. Why is it so hard why is it that's that's my question it's like it just seems like this should be such an easy political winner for people who get elected go to washington what the heck happens uh as the sausage is being made where they just come out and uh and they're acting like lips and you know what else goes into a hot dog as opposed to the times that where they're speaking to the people when they're running for election promising them these tax cuts what happens well you know unfortunately the incentives are all off right mm. like their donors all of you know both parties are uh, have largely co- corporate donors who they end up being responsible to. And right. so I think we see that being given back to them when it comes to this type of legislation. We've seen, you know, number of times this year, Republicans haven't actually been able to pass meaningful legislation. Right. Instead, they're just trying to advance things that their donors are pushing them to do. So how do we change it? What do we do? Because I mean, honestly, uh, that's one of the interesting parts with like the Steve Bannon Republicans. They are, and, and Bernie Sanders, who have a Venn diagram there of sort of populism and get money out of politics. And certainly social media and technology has made it cheaper than ever to run for political office what can be done to ensure when we could when we put these people in office republican or democrat that they actually have the best interest of their constituents in mind is there any way because i feel like this has been happening our entire lives right Oh, it's very true. Yeah, I think it's particularly hyperpartisan right now, but it's right. definitely been a pattern we've seen for a long time. I, I think what 2017 has shown us so far, though, is actually the power of citizen outrage. You know, I think we've all been very upset about the current political system yeah. for a long time, but we've been a lot more organized about it now. We're making calls to our senators. Right. You know, we're writing letters. We're we're going to actions and things like that. So I think we need to see more of that, and that's one reason yeah. I channeled the Monopoly Man to try to make sure that people knew about this. You know, get out of jail free card for Equifax that the Senate. Republicans are currently trying to push through. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then on a joke level, I do want to say you are co-opting male culture. The mo- <laughs> it's the monopoly, man. Um, but tell us about the aqua- uh, Equifax thing. What, what the heck is going on with this? Sure. So obviously there's a lot of issues at play with Equifax. They ended up breaching 143, or I think 145 million uh, people's <sighs> data at this point, which is oh three God. quarters of the adult population. So pretty Jeez. much if you're listening to this, you almost certainly got your data breached, and so did I. And what does that mean exactly? Um, that basically means that people who would like to steal our identities now have our social security numbers, mm. our birth dates, all the vital information they need to open up credit in our names. And oh my goodness. unfortunately, okay. because our whole system is built around that kind of data, you know, we are now at risk for the rest of our lives until we put a different system in place. Hmm. That's why we need to see a congressional solution. We need to see Equifax held accountable. So what was a different solution than this sort of clunky old school way of identifying us on a national level? What, what would that look like? Well, if we, so- do we just Get ra- do we get rid of the social security numbers? I mean, it's almost a libertarian's dream in some ways, uh, you know, doing away with these sort of identifying uh, factors that we have to in- inform the federal government about. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think we need a more modern system. I mean, yeah. obviously, at this point with the Internet, I think we all know how unsafe it is. Yes. For instance, if you had a password that's just nine numbers long, mm-hmm. um, anyone can guess that very easily. And so we need to come up with some sort of, you know, two-factor identification, something that's a lot more complicated than what we have right now. I'm not a... Right. 
an information technology expert, so I'm not the best person to suggest things, but it's clear sure. that at this point, the system we've had for, you know, 100 years at this point is not working. And so why wasn't Equifax, you know, why weren't their feet held to the fire? Why weren't they? I mean, this seems like a massive intrusion of uh, personal liberty and, and personal freedoms. Why why did they just get allowed to sort of skate? Yeah, well, you know, the senators certainly had a fun day yelling at them in the hearing. Right. I don't, I haven't seen, you know, much substantive movement come out of that. You know, right. I think it's hard for them to move any kind of legislation right now, but this is something that clearly a majority of Americans on both sides agree on. Unfortunately, what we've seen is they've actually tried to move legislation that would allow Equifax to get away with its wrongdoing. That's the bill that I tried to call attention to. Mm -hmm. um, it's SJ Res 47. Basically, it's a mm. taking away our right to a day in court to sue companies like Equifax and mm. Wells Fargo when they break the law. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Senate Republicans tried to sneak this through the week before the Equifax hearing when folks weren't looking. Right. Luckily, we were able to channel enough public outreach to stem that. Um, but, you know, of course, we're actually looking at a possible vote next week to do this again. Um, so I'm glad the Monopoly man was able to kind right. of get people more yeah. excited about this and make sure that people know about the issue of forced arbitration. But it's something we really need to see a lot more outrage, a lot more calls to the senators. This is why a lot of people are, you know, considering uh, this republic is now officially an oligarchy, I suppose, right? It is run by the large corporations. I was just railing against big pharmaceutical companies all day yesterday. Mm -hmm. 200,000 people uh, die a year because of opioid addiction, things like that. And then they're passing legislation, which is basically going to strengthen these pharmaceutical companies and allow them to continue to drug our society and have our mothers and uh, fathers and sons and daughters killed uh, because of these drugs. Um, so how do you just continue the tread? Because Washington is going to keep on going every week. If you say no, it's the same thing with TPP. Mm -hmm. uh, if you recall, TPP, it did not pass the first time. It actually passed on the same Friday. They passed gay marriage. It kind of went under the radar. Everyone was celebrating, and rightfully so, uh, the passage of gay marriage. But then they still get it through. So how do we, as a society, just because we have day jobs, we have lives that we have mm -hmm. to live. How do we keep like the pressure on? You know, I think I think folks have set a really good example in kind of pushing back against the health care repeal, against yeah. these other bad bills that have come forward. People have made the phone calls. They've sent letters. They've signed petitions. They've, you know, actually gone to town halls and held their politicians accountable. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, we need to remember that these folks work for us. And right. we need to make sure they actually uphold the Constitution they're sworn to protect. Yeah. You know, it's funny with uh, Trump giving that speech just now at the mm -hmm. Heritage Foundation. He invoked God-given rights and mm -hmm. constitutional values. The fact is, this uh, current repeal of our right to a day court is actually attacking our Seventh Amendment rights. Mm. And I think we need to take all of the amendments as seriously as we take, you know, the Second Amendment, the First Amendment. Right. This is a really uh, crucial right for all of us on both sides of the aisle. And we need to make sure that politicians know this isn't about Republican versus Democrat. Right. This is about little guy versus big guy. Is this an issue that the Democratic Party can attach themselves to and perhaps try to get some seats back in 18, 2020? This is definitely something they've tried to put into the platform. You know, yeah. I really appreciate them being really good leaders on this. In fact, just recently at a press conference, Chuck Schumer announced that forced arbitration and you know getting back our rights to a day in court is going to be part of the Better Deal platform. But you know, I really don't think this should be a partisan issue. Right. In fact, you know, I just talked to Stuart Varney last week on Fox News about yep. this issue. I got a lot of followers who are you know very conservative and very uh, interested in these issues. I think this is something we should all be speaking out about. That's uh, absolutely correct. So you did an Ask Me Anything on October sixth. Is that correct? 
I did, yeah. And this is on Reddit. So what were some of the questions that you got? It garnered one, more than 1.2 million views uh, and is now the eighth most popular Ask Me Anything of all time, which is awesome because it's over taxes and it's over uh, you know, uh, financial reform in government. I mean, how uh, cool is that? The Reddit, that's the eighth uh, most famous or most popular of all time. Yeah, I mean, I still some can't of the, really believe it. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, usually it would be, you know, about waxing something or God knows what happens. I, I look at Reddit every now and again. Um, but uh, what were some of the questions that you got that you were like, that were, that were interesting and, and you realized uh, that you're doing something very compelling? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most common questions I got was just, you know, how are you allowed in the hearing room in this costume? How'd you get yeah, away right. with this, essentially? And, you know, what folks need to know is that you can actually do a lot in a Senate hearing. I mean, you can't make noise, you can't hold up signs, but mm -hmm. you can dress in costume, you can yeah. make silly faces, you can react. You know, there's a lot of kind of creative activism that can come into play here that totally. people just don't tap into. So I was really happy to be able to do that. I think, you know, another reason this resonated and another reason so many folks participated in the Ask Me Anything is just because it came came during a really rough week. It came right after the Las Vegas shooting. It yeah. came, you know, when we get this barrage of bad news on a daily yeah. basis, I think folks wanted a reason to laugh. Um, and honestly, I think Trump has really tapped into that. He's he's tapped into people's need for entertainment. Absolutely. Um, but I think the difference here is, you know, some folks find Trump ins inspiring. Some folks find him, you know, much less inspiring. Yep. But I think what the difference with my activism was, it was something that could resonate with people across right. sides. Because again, yeah. it's little guy versus big guy. Right. And this was a chance for the little guy to really get to laugh in the face of, you know, the actual Monopoly man and the Equifax CEO. You know, I, I just had uh, uh, Jamu Green on here recently. She was a, a big activist for Hillary Clinton, was appointed to the UN by Hillary in 2010, uh, talking about how now, as far as like women's empowerment, uh, you know, it's at a point where I think that the election, uh, for some people, they absolutely loved it, as you just said. And for others, it was a it was a, a, pretty, a, a pretty big uh, slap, uh, you know, in the private parts, uh, you know, it really did hurt a lot of people's uh, emotionally. Uh, do you feel like now people have sort of gone through the stages of grief and are ready to be proactive and try to get some things done and um, are, are just sort of over the, you know, licking their wounds, laying in bed kind of phase of it? Yeah, you know, I think as hard as it's been for a lot of activists on, on the left side here, uh, folks are really, I've been very inspired by the level of activism, the level of resistance. I've never seen people on either side of the aisle right. this involved in politics and actually, you know, like I said, calling their senators, going to right. uh, protests, you know, um, writing letters and all of that. So I think, yeah, we're seeing an awakening on both sides of the aisle of just people realizing that those in power are not going to save us, whether it's right. Trump, whether it's Obama. It's actually us that needs to do the work. Yeah. And I hope that, you know, again, the Monopoly Man could inspire people as a, a way to do this that's not necessarily, you know, really tiring and soul-crushing, but no. actually Actually, can be energizing. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, and I like that it, it, it. There's an intellectualism to it. You know, I just with Antifa and these white nationalist groups. I mean, they're like meeting up at the same time. We're living in it's like this. We're living in like the dumbest civil war of all time, uh, where it's like why are they're just physically fighting one another with with sticks? It's almost like cosplay uh, for uh, for civil rights. Uh, it is so awesome that you're actually just doing something and doing it intelligently without all the hyperbolic nonsense that both sides spew. And really being able to find like that sort of through line is not easy to do. And I'm interested to hear how that even began as a passion. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, first of all, I just want to say I think it's hard for people to, you know, come at this with this kind of creative or fun lens, obviously, when their very rights are at stake. Like, this is a right. rough year exactly. for a lot of people when you have 
Nazis marching on your yes. campus, I think it makes total sense to react, you know, um, emotionally to that. Of course. So, you know, that's one piece of it. But I think that at this point we can see, you know, there are other opportunities, other ways we can do this that might resonate more with folks and might create bigger change. Yeah. I, I think really, you know, there are a lot of forms of protest. There are a lot of different ways that you can tackle a problem. Mm-hmm. I encourage all of them. I'm glad that I could add this one piece to the toolkit, yeah. but I would encourage anyone, you know, protest the way that you feel comfortable, uh, make action the way that you can, and be sure yep. to call your senator and tell them to vote no on SJ Res 47. That's it. Violence, no violence. That's my only rule and no destruction of property either it's never the CEOs that are cleaning up the broken window. It's always the janitor who is making minimum wage who doesn't want to wake up early in the morning, but is forced to uh, because someone was upset with a wealthy person. Thank you so much for being here. Amanda Warner, anything you want to plug? Where can people find you and all those things? Um, So you can find me on Twitter at WAmandaJD. That's my handle there. You can also just search the Monopoly Man. Awesome. Um, I would also say if you're interested in learning more about Equifax's Get Out of Jail free card and this bill that's being advanced in the Senate right now could be a vote of students next week, you can go to noripoffclause.com. That's all one word. No It'll rip- tell you all about forced arbitration. Noripoffclause.com. Yes. All right. Check it out. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I really me. appreciate it. All right, everyone. This is uh, Fox News Talk. We'll take a quick break, and we will be right back. Hey, everyone. How are you? Welcome back to the show. I am Ben Kissel. This is Fox News talk. I am honored right now to welcome my guest. He has a memoir coming out next Tuesday. It's called Never Look at the Empty Seats. Charlie Daniels. Mr. Daniels, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, partner. I appreciate it. I appreciate everything you've done, brother. This is this is a big honor for me. I'm a big country music fan, and I'm a big old country music fan. Outlaw country as well, my man. All right, buddy. So why get along good? <laughs> uh, so why now? What's uh, why? Why the memoir? What's going on? Um, is, is, have you been working on this book for quite a while? I've been working on this book for about twenty years. Okay, I just started uh, started writing one day way back yonder, and I just kept writing and making notes and remembering things and pulling out memories and putting them down and going yeah. back and editing and trying to keep it concise. And I could never find a place to end it. I just kept writing, and uh, interesting things kept happening too. I was never asked to be a member of the Grand Ole Opry until I was in my seventies. Oh so my things god! Things kept happening. I kept writing, and then uh, when I was told I was going to be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame, I thought, you know, this is a great place to end this. So I did. Oh, awesome. I, after the night after I was inducted, I came home and sat down and wrote the ending, and I kind of back wrote to where I was, and I had it finally after all these years. So when you're going through this, you're you're racking your mind, thinking of memories, old times, uh, old stories. Was there a, was there a memory you had that you were surprised you uh, forgot about? Was there was there a situation that you had like, oh wow, that's right, I remember this incredible experience, uh, and I've there had so some, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say there were some situations that I actually call. Uh, I would be thinking about one thing, and I call somebody and ask them about you know, do you remember thirty years ago when? Right. And they'd say, yeah, and we, and we'd go from there. And, and, and then it, there would be a situation that I had completely forgotten about. Right. You know, that, that stemmed off of, of something that I had said. And then the stories just go, but about the only time I can ever remember a lot of people always ask me about road stories when I do interviews, but the only time I can remember is when I get together with somebody that I've traveled a lot with and we start to tell them, you know, you'll start, well, you remember the night in St. Paul and, and, then you go from there, and first thing you know, you're just 
you're just rolling. You're never running out of stories. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to up. Right? Oh, absolutely. So when it came to uh, traveling back in the day, uh, it was obviously much different than now. Transportation was completely different. Uh, what was that lifestyle like? Was it was it exhilarating, or at some point were you just like, if I see one more line in the highway, I am I'm done. Never, never. I always loved. I still to this day love driving. I love getting up on the bus, yeah, and walking up and pulling the curtain back and seeing what motel parking lot we're in. <laughs> and I know that sounds kind of facetious, but it's not. It's absolutely true. I love traveling. I love going around from place to place, being in one town one night and one town the next. But what keeps me out there is the music. Yeah. It always has been. It always will be that I get to perform. The music that I have written and, uh, and and you know nurtured through all these years, and for right. people that I get to see their reaction to the music that I wrote, and it's just nothing like it. It's just wonderful. So ex- explain when did this love? When did the love of music really uh, take over you? And, and really, uh, at what point did you realize this is this could be my life? Because uh, the idea of being a musician, the idea of making money off of the arts, specifically how successful you have been, uh, wasn't necessarily on the forefront of a lot of folks' minds back in the day. Well, it really wasn't. In fact. Uh... Being able to become a professional musician was about the first thing in my mind when I was a kid because I didn't know how to play. <laughs> I learned a friend from a friend of mine. I learned three chords on a guitar. When you play three chords, there's a whole lot of country songs you can play with just three chords. And I could play a whole song, which was just about the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. And from that moment on, there would be a lot of roads to go down, a lot of things to go through. But all I ever really wanted to be from that point on was a professional musician. That's all I want to be now. So God has granted me the desire of my heart to be able to do what I exactly what I love to do for a living, and I've done it now for almost 60 years. And the great thing about your music, your songs, the lyrics... They're human. They are very human. And, and there's nothing, uh, you know, you're not trying to, um, uh, you know, get out there and, and talk about some fantastical things necessarily. They're very human. How do you, when it comes to your worldview, when it comes to you looking uh, at situations, when do you know, like, I'm about to sit down and write long-haired country boy. Like, when do you know that you've just experienced something or seen something uh, that has inspired a song? Well, I came up the day before television. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things I listened to the radio, and and I had to draw my own pictures. I had to imagine a Lone Ranger riding across the desert with Tonto. I had to imagine all the things that I heard dramatized on the radio. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any. I didn't have any. And in, in my mind, I I was able to you know think and imagine things and see things. Mm-hmm. And I think when I got ready to write songs, I think that really helped me. Mm-hmm. That I visualized things. I visualized things. In story form mm. so something would would uh, be like devil went down to georgia that line just came in my mind right devil went down to georgia now where'd it come from it you know so i just right. went in with the band and, and and we wrote this song so i had a when you get something that you feel is poetic or meaningful uh-huh. or musical or whatever and you start in that direction. You got to have, especially with me, if I'm writing a story, I got to have a beginning and an ending, and then the rest is just hard work. You got to fill in between. And at some point, uh, you know, you have the devil went down to Georgia. I mean, a, a massive hit, like so many of your other songs. At any point, do you hear people scream, "Devil went down to Georgia," and you're like, "I don't want to sing it tonight." I am. No, I'm no, work- no, never, never, no. I love That's that. What they come for. They come to right. hear. The songs that, that they've heard on the radio, 
People don't know yeah. your new music. I don't know the stuff. I hate to see a band play. Yeah. They do a medley of their hits and spend the rest of the night trying to say their new album. Right. I want to hear the new stuff, but I want to hear the familiar stuff. You owe that to people to play your familiar stuff and then put your new stuff in between it. The things you, you know, you, that you're trying to, the, the new stuff you're trying to do, your new records, your new songs. Yeah. Put those in between, but give the people what they can't pay to come here. I am very, so yeah. conscious about entertaining people. I want them. I don't want anybody ever walking out of uh, a show of ours saying I didn't get my money's worth because oh, yeah. I'm gonna give it to them every night. That every that's night. that's great. I mean, that's that's where you and and and, uh, and all the greats, Bruce Springsteen, the greats, uh, have that crossover where you just want to give the folks uh, what they paid for, and you understand. Um, uh, how difficult it is to afford some of these tickets, and what a big deal it oh, is yeah. for people. As you were, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And and that's what I mean. That's and that's because you obviously, uh, you you know, you, you came from the bottom and uh, and you worked your way up, and you're a great example of uh, what can happen in America if you just work your tail off, and uh, you can actually become everything that you've wanted to become. Oh, I so much believe in the American dream and the fulfillment. Yeah, the American dream. I believe. I believe it's there. It's been there. It was there for me. Mm-hmm. It's there for anybody who's really willing to go after it, right? And uh, do what needs to be done to get it. It takes work. Mm-hmm. It takes sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot, a lot of of tenacity, mm-hmm. sticking to it, and believing in yourself when nobody else does. Yeah. And but I believe it's there. I believe it's there for, for everybody who sincerely wants to go after it. When did you realize you were living your dream? Did was there, or did you just feel it immediately? My first inclination, my first desire actually was to cut the apron strings in my daytime job and be a full time professional musician. Yes. That had a symbolism to it. Oh man, that meant so much to me. I yeah, that, that I could say, "What do you do for a living?" I'm a musician. That's all I do. I don't do anything else. Yeah, and uh, I, I was I was in my early twenties when I realized that dream, and I finally cut the apron strings in 1958. And, and may I may I ask what you were doing before? I was working in a, it, it actually it's a creosote plant where uh, I was working on what they call the green end. I was on the end where the, the lumber and the poles and the piling came in before they were treated. Oh, okay. I, was, I was an inspector. I used to inspect the quality of those before they moved on. But I quit my job in the summer of 1958, wow. and uh, I've been doing it ever since. That is awesome. So, I mean, you've worked with just some of the greatest musicians, uh, I mean, of, of a century. You worked with Willie. Uh, you got Stevie Ray Vaughan, James Brown, Emmy Lou Harris, uh, George Thorogood, Chris Christopherson, Tammy Wynette, Alabama, B.B. King, Allman Brothers. Uh, at, at some point... Um, how does it feel to just be in the company of these uh, of these icons? And are you are you uh, able to see yourself uh, it, with the iconic label that obviously you uh, that you have? I really don't. I cannot. You know, uh, somebody calls me an icon or or something in that vernacular in that way. I just don't. I don't see me there. I'm just. I just. God has just blessed me so much to be able to do. Exactly what I want to do for yeah. a living for so long, right? And I, I, I can't. It's all blessing. It's not, you know. It's, it's just. It's, it's. I mean, I work really hard. Yeah. To happen, but it's just the blessings of God that I can do exactly what I want. How many people can say that? Oh my goodness! In the last sixty years, I've done exactly what I want to do for a living. Yeah. I've been able to write songs and have people have you know plan for people for yeah. enjoyment. 
And that's it. I, who, that's what I'm about. That's what I do. I'm a big fan of drinking beers. Uh, who's your favorite person to have a couple of beers with, if you had a chance? Oh, my gosh. There's so many. I, I would, You know, I, one, I, I don't know if I have any beer because I don't even drink beer or not, but I, I hate that I did not get to meet Elvis while he was alive. I'm mm. such a huge Elvis fan. And one of the biggest breaks I ever had was when I was uh, back many years ago, he recorded one of my songs, which was one of the first breaks I ever had in the music business. Mm. And I probably could have facilitated that. I know some people who knew him and so on, and he just lives across the way in, in Memphis. I, I live in the Nashville area. Right. But I just never did really push it. You know, you never thought about it. And then one day somebody came and told me Elvis has passed away, and I totally missed that opportunity. I never got a chance to meet him, but I wish I did. I would love to have Oh, my, yeah. I mean, I guess that's... Uh... Yeah, you never you never know when uh, when you're no. going to be called. I guess when your number is up, That's I right. suppose uh, that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So what uh, what do you want people to get out of this book? I cannot wait uh, to go through and read all these stories. What what emotion do you want people when we're done with the final page? What do you what do you want us to feel? I want them to know that the you know, story that that of my life, but it's about. This goes, as I, as I said a while ago, from my earliest remembrances, the first things I can ever remember. I mean, I go back when I was five years old, the day Pearl Harbor was bombed. Mm. I was only five years old at the time, but I remember it. I grew up to a large extent during the Second World War, and it shaped a lot of my life, a lot of my feelings, the way I feel about the military, the way I feel about the country, right. the way I feel about patriotism and that sort of thing. Uh, I wanted to, people to know that to come, I wanted to see where I came from. Right. That I came from a very, very, very blue, generations of blue-collar people. Right. Honest, hard-working blue-collar people. And yeah. that, uh, if, if you want to chase a dream, right. and you can, I, I have been chasing a dream now for, uh, gosh, for 60-some years. It's awesome. I, I've been chasing, ever since I learned those four, first three chords yeah. on a guitar when I was about 15 years old, I've been chasing a dream. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's like if you want it, don't let anybody tell you you can't have it. Totally. That's what I want them to get out of this book. Go out and get it. Yes. Make sure you're equipped for it. I mean, if you're not, you don't try to be a rocket scientist. If you can't pass third grade math, you know, I don't mean <laughs> that. But if you're, if you are, if you're qualified, if you feel you're right. qualified, you feel that you're competitive, don't let anybody, don't let anybody stop you from yeah. doing it. And, uh, you know, go, go, go yeah. live your dream. Otherwise, if I was sitting here 80 years old and I had said back when I was, young and i had a chance to cut the apron strings and go into full-time music and i didn't did it didn't do it and i was sitting right. here at 80 years old having retired from an oil company or something you mm -hmm. think i'd be happy no. you think i wouldn't have doubts about whether well i could have done it or could not. right no there's only one way to prove it mm -hmm. so if you got that if you don't have a fire in your belly don't give it a shot if and, you got a fire in the belly right desire in your heart and the talent you feel you can handle it Go for it. Absolutely. And that goes for anything. I don't, it, whether you're a cafeteria worker, a janitor, just be the best. Uh, that's that's it. I just have to ask my final question. Um, it's just a when with your uh, with your folks um, coming from a blue, blue collar background. What did what was the response uh, just briefly when uh, when you said I'm a musician? Everybody was afraid I was going to starve to death. <laughs> <laughs> there were there was no really places to play in hmm. uh, part of North Carolina I was in. I was, there were no, there were everybody basically starts in nightclubs. There were no nightclubs basically in my part of the country. They were, they didn't have a, a open bars. They didn't have, you know, uh, the liquor laws were really weird. All they served was three, two beer. Oh, yeah. The only place I could work, I went to Jacksonville, North Carolina to the 
or the second Marine division is at Camp Lejeune. Mm. And that was, I went to work there. I went to work there six nights a week because the Marines got out and partied, you know? Oh yeah. And it was a place to work. But then you get to where you want, you know, you want more, you want to do more. You want to, of course you want to move up in the world. So then I moved up to the Washington DC area and from then to the world, you know, and it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful if you, but the thing is, if you, if you love, you got also one of the things I did not mention when I was talking about going for. You got to love what you're doing. Yeah. If you don't love it, don't you know? You've got to love it, and you're absolutely, absolutely right. Regardless of what profession you want to pursue, mm-hmm. if you want to make something out of your life, in that you know, it, no, it, not it, that doesn't apply just to music. Right, that apply, applies to everything. Go for it. Go get it. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Charlie Daniels, a memoir comes out next Tuesday. Never look at the empty seats. A real honor of my life to speak with you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Let's do it again sometime. Sounds wonderful. All right, everyone. You're listening to Fox News Talk. I'm Ben Kissel. We'll take a quick break. Be right back. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, Is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo.